Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. I'm your co-host, Nathan. I'm flying solo this week. Co-host Corey should be back with us very soon. We've got another Experience Points episode for you, where we go back and take the finest cuts of wisdom from previous interviews. Here's Dr. Nick Jansen talking about meeting people where they're at and helping patients find a point of connection. Step one is to really help people recognize that there's this there's this capacity for connection and sometimes it's really small and subtle we don't really tune into it and but if that can be the the emerging point where we start to realize that there's a way out of the struggle that people are in um, that would definitely be step one and that can come through many different ways maybe it comes through embodiment with exercise and movement maybe it comes through a new appreciation of food and we teach a lot of fasting that sometimes comes from a place of going uh, for a period of time without food and really getting in touch with that emotional body that comes up and speaks to us or, or yells at us, you know, Hey, it's 12 o'clock time to eat. Where's my food? You know, that kind of thing. And, and through supplementation and creating a new relationship to the kinds of things that really nourish us and, and what, uh, and the things that don't, you know, and that could be relationships and everything else. So it's sort of like a coming to, um, let's say God moment, but it's sort of coming to uh, meeting ourselves, you know, with, with people in the room, it's really about how, how are you willing to meet yourself now? And are you willing to establish a new connection to, to you and what's possible? And some people are, and some people aren't. You know, and it's not my place to tell people that where they have to be. It's more like, here's an opportunity to be here and, and we'll walk that path with you if you're ready. You know, to the point of are, are people ready to make a change? That's that's sort of the, the realization that I think we all have to come to because we're all guilty of like not following through with plans. We all get lazy. You know, I, I know I do. I'm not perfect by any means. Mm-hmm. And I but do we have a capacity to go, OK, I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go at this again. I'm going to figure it out this time. Uh, you know, I think, you know, we think of someone in, in that, you know, depending on how they're relating to their moment, you know, because some, someone who can be in active addiction could be in denial, someone in active addiction could be, you know, really reaching out for help and, and someone could have just got their butt pushed in here because their partner said, you better take care of this or I'm out of here. And so there's an ultimatum. And I think, you know, whatever that that's the first thing to establish is like, why are you here? You know, really, why are you here? What brought you here? Because it's sort of a conversation of willingness and desire for connection. And it's all those things. But, uh, you know, obviously, we want to try to meet people where they are. And, and I think, you know, to, to say, like, what to do next is that when we're stuck in that narrow focus of, you know, this is my entire reality, there's the lack of choice. I don't know anything else. You know, it's just it's so focused on the, on the problem. You know, we say this about pain too. You know, pain is the worst thing ever that, that could ever happen. And when it's gone tomorrow, you, you forgot that it was there because yeah. you have more faculty, you got more choices. And so I think one of the first things, once we orient people towards like, why are you actually here? Do you want to be here? Is this the right time for you? Of course, I want it to be the right time for everybody. I want people to move out of their suffering. But again, that's out of my hands. But, you know, my first opportunity is to help people physically feel more energy so they have more choices so if we want to get really reductionist we'd say we'd be doing things to optimize mitochondrial function you know we'd be taking out the sugars we'd be taking out the stresses the toxins the things that are overwhelming your system so that you stay so narrow in your focus because in that narrowed focus you've got a ton of inflammation and really low energy and so it's we get more choice when we have more energy on a cellular level 
Up next, we have award-winning journalist and best-selling author Maya Salovitz on why punishment doesn't work for addiction and the logic and compassion behind harm reduction. One of the things that I have tried to make clear is that the most commonly accepted definition of addiction is compulsive behavior, drug use, other kinds of behavior that continues in the face of negative consequences. In other words, punishment is the one thing we know will not work by definition. And that sort of people, that sort of starts to make people think, you know, because once you've got beyond defining addiction as, oh, you physically need something to function. Well, we all need water. We all need air. We all need love. You know, if we have our appropriate sources of those things, it is not a problem. What is a problem is if we're compulsively pursuing something harmful. And a lot of people get that because, you know, a lot of people are on medication for blood pressure that they have to stay on. And in fact, withdrawal from some of those medications could actually kill you. But nobody robs drugstores for them because you don't crave them or feel any um, kind of relief from them. Uh, and it actually might be better if you did, because then people would take their medication. <laughs> Not that I'm advocating for addictive drugs. Um, but, the, um, you know, with certain things, it, it actually, you know, I never forgot to take my heroin. It's really interesting because I'm, I'm very in awe of the harm reduction activists in the South and in some of these red states where they're basically fighting the battles that we fought in the 80s. And the thing is, they do have a lot better weapons than we did because they have all our data. We had data too, um, and it really, you know, we knew what we needed to know in order to know what the right thing to do was. But now there's an immense amount of data, and now you have the federal government on the side of harm reduction rather than on the side of, you know, shut this down, it's terrible, we're going to send the wrong message. And I think one of the things that is amazing about harm reduction is that when you get it, when you understand that really our goal in drug policy should be stopping people from getting hurt, not stopping them from getting high. Like, I don't care if you get high. If you want to get high, that's fine. As long as you're not hurting yourself or someone else, I don't care. I don't think the government should care. Just let it be, right? But if you are hurting yourself or others, then we do have an interest in trying to prevent or reduce that. And the thing is, if that's our goal, we can't do more harm to you trying to stop you from harming yourself than we can if we just, uh, you know, let it happen. Um, mm -hmm. That makes no sense. And when you sort of see it from that perspective, and when you recognize that, you know, most people in general, they would much rather, you know, prevent a baby from being hurt than, um, you know, stop somebody from smoking a joint. It's not morally superior to stop the drug itself. What is morally superior, and this is where harm reduction wins, is to stop the harm or reduce the harm as much as it's possible. Because the reality of life is that we're all going to do harm at certain points and we try not to, we do our best to like avoid it, but you know, that's the price of living on this planet to some extent. And, you know, people's needs are going to vary and there's all kinds of ways that, you know, we're going to hurt each other. So I think the best philosophy is let's minimize harm as much as possible. And let's recognize that, you know, people need to feel okay. And that if somebody is like fundamentally, whether you know, for genetic or temperamental or genetically, genetically uh, sort of driven temperamental reasons, for any reason, if somebody 
you know, simply can't feel okay and they find a substance that works for them, then we need to not just take that substance away if we're trying to help them. We need to like find a way for them to be okay in their own skin in this world. And if we can't offer that, why wouldn't people, you know, want to escape? I think the assumption that our baseline consciousness feels the same is just wrong. Yeah. Like, I may be super oversensitive to things and you might even like, I might just freak out from a loud noise. You might not even notice it. That doesn't mean I'm bad or your nervous system is good or whatever. It just means that I'm going to be bothered by something that you don't even notice. And <laughs> that may make me behave in a way that is unusual because I'm trying to stop being bothered. If we could choose what bothers us, that would be a really good thing. But I have, you know, sadly, I do not have that ability and I do not know anybody who really does. Registered nurse Cassidy talks about living within the rigid structure of a monitoring contract and how she managed to get through. I actually have a note that says we're very self-centered and we tend to think people are going to think a lot about you, but they, they honestly don't end up really caring. They're just like, they hear it, it's gone. You know, they're kind of more invested in what's going on in themselves. And it's like, unless you said something super crazy, but the mm -hmm. fact that you don't drink or that you don't, you know, use recreational drugs is it's pretty common. So it's like the, the more you talk about it, the more people you're going to find that are either share the same values or like intrigued on why you have those values. But other than that, there's like, rarely ever any judgment passed and like you kind of said if there was any judgment passed then you kind of know you're not on the same playing field so it's not going to work yes. anyways easier said than done because when you're in the dating scene like if that shame's still there and it's still strong like it's still talking about it now seems easy but i definitely can remember it not being that easy so that was one of the more frustrating things i found with the monitoring contract is you know, they shove you into this box that says, this is what's going to keep you sober. When in fact, they're trying to do everything in their power to make you live a specific lifestyle that might not condone your lifestyle, which like my lifestyle and my sanity came from adventuring, came from, you know, doing all of these things. But this contract was really trying to stop me from doing all those things. And I, I had to fight tooth and nail to try and do the things that kept me healthy. And because they wanted me to live this one track path that is like, you log in every morning, you have to go to this facility at this time. And it's, you know, you have to come to this amount of meetings every month. There was not a lot of room for, for breathing in that contract. And it, it was frustrating. And for someone like, I'm a pretty strong person and I can stand up for what I believe in, but for somebody that maybe falls a little bit more on, on the softer side, this program will break you literally break you like it does not allow a lot of room for growth or independence or anything which some people will need that coming out of uh and you know wherever they're coming out from a hundred percent people need to be guided and need this structure so i get it could work for some people i don't want to make the program seem awful and terrible and that it's like not doable because it is and i, I was able to do it and i was able to still do the things i love and i was still able to date and i was still able to go adventuring it is possible. You just you just got to want it and make it happen. And, and you can, and, and I did, and I finished the program. So just breathe, honestly, it helps the most just to get through it. And the Caduceus group, <laughs> this is a shameless plug for Nathan, I swear, but that group helped me get through this program was what, just, what, what, what's that group called? <laughs> it's the Caduceus group. <laughs> what's Obsidian, it Obsidian support, I think something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Obsidian support. Yeah. It was, Honestly, it was the only good thing that came out of the program because I, 
I look back and I'm like, what would are things that I would change sometimes? And I don't, I don't know if I would change a whole lot, but like it was that one group was able to like give me resources to know that I wasn't alone and there are other healthcare professionals and you're able to vent and talk about things that are, sometimes aren't acceptable in other kind of group meetings because there's like a straight and narrow path and then just meeting like-minded people and knowing there's, yeah, that was one of the things that really helped me was the, the Obsidian support group meeting. and just acceptance. God, I hated that saying when I went to treatment, acceptance is the answer. But Mm -hmm. honestly, it is sometimes. And if you want to get through this monitoring contract, and you want to get back to bedside nursing, and that's, that's your plan. It's a three year contract, you're, you're not going to get straight A's and get let out sooner. Like it's just not going to happen. So if you just kind of accept that and move forward, then it will get easier. You can do it. Our friend Peter gives us his take on legalizing drugs, prohibition, drug user autonomy, and pharmacological determinants. Well, I think drug use would actually increase, but it's important to make a distinction between drug use in general versus harmful drug use. Critical sort of insight, I think, is that most of the harms that we view as intrinsic harms of drugs actually come from the way that we attempt to manage them with our policies. So yeah, I think think the criminalization itself blurs the intrinsic harms of drugs, the way that we've criminalized people who use drugs, the way that we've criminalized the substances themselves. I mean, the iron law, of course, is a perfect example of the way that that exacerbates overdose risk. So I just think it's so interesting that, you know, Today, we have our opioid epidemic. We have our 6,500 Canadians a year dying of overdose, over 100,000 Americans last year. After all our cracking down and prohibition and and all of this approach, that's where it gets us. First of all, I don't understand why methadone and buprenorphine specifically has to do more or less with how they're the least fun of all of them. (laughs) So I think it's more for the comfort of the people who are doing the prescribing, that it's it's what they are okay with. There's no real good pharmacologic reason why you couldn't use morphine or heroin or anything mm. else. One of the big problems I have with the whole buprenorphine and methadone programs is like, it's an actual requirement of these programs that you make yourself physically dependent. You can't take it on Monday and then have it again on Saturday if you want, but it's like, well, what if I don't want to? What if that's not how I use opioids? The starting assumption of, of the whole program is that there's no user autonomy of possible. And I understand that for many people that that describes their the, the condition, but I think there's many people who that doesn't really work for them. So why are we not trusted with this? And it goes back to the whole sort of stereotyped ideas of how there's, a, there's this idea of called pharmacologic determinism that a given drug has to have Opioids have to addict and enslave you. Uh, cocaine has to turn you into a jerk who, you know, lies to people. But these things are actually much more culturally constructed. Pastor Ward Draper on staying humble, doing your best with what's in front of you, and being okay with not knowing. I, I'm a person that's really believes in commitment and. Uh, really believes in you know your yes being yes and your no being no to the best of your abilities. I'm a guy that really believes heavily in being the first in, last out in leadership. For staying humble, I don't know. I just, I don't really, like I said, I just don't, it's not about me. And, and I mean, how trite that statement is. I really couldn't care less. I, I just, that's just who I am. 
just yeah just do what has to be done what's in front of you i mean there is no shortage of social issues political issues environmental issues to deal with so find something pick it up and just run with it don't just jump all over the place and I just chose to stick with the idea that the five and two's basic mission statement, what I put together was, you know, love God, love others, do that everywhere, rinse and repeat. That's just it. Like, do the best you can, right, at that moment. And whatever happens, happens. That's one of the problems. We complicate things all the time, right? That's kind of the human thing. We complicate things or we uh, trip over fear or, we, you know, there's, there's so many different things. And particularly with the church, I mean, the biggest issue is – that I feel is it seems that it seems to be constantly just so wrapped up in itself and wrapped up in fear, you know, just trying to control things, keep, you know, keep power in, in place uh, and not learning how to let go of things and stopping afraid. Because I mean, if you have, if you ever get a chance to, you know, read the Bible from end to end, the biggest commandment that always comes up, the always, the one big statement that always comes up is don't be afraid. You got nothing to lose. Yeah. I mean, and it's not even that it's uh, malicious or even willful or intentional. Sometimes it's just this, weird knee-jerk reaction that we need to feel we have to constantly have everything in our hands you know when i started this ministry you know i, I quit a job and i didn't know what i was going to do i just hand out socks and sandwiches you know and then, then now we run shelters and programs and you know we got a couple dozen employees and blah 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 and it's like I didn't know what was going to happen i've never had a five-year plan i just said you know uh just you know fuck it and just went Right. And whatever happened has happened. And that's one of the problems with the church is we've given up on mystery. Right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. The Western church has kind of just turned its back on mystery. Well, it's just our we the eastern side of the church. So the Orthodox end of the world particularly loves mystery. They're they're mm -hmm. totally comfortable with that. They they're OK with it. I don't know. But the Western church is just, you know, I'm speaking in broad strokes. But I mean, if you go through, you know, a, most of the theological textbooks or event, whatever, evangelism books, apologetics, it's all about here are the 12 steps to this. So there's total control. There's no guesswork. You know, this is how you save a sinner. This is how you do an outreach program. This is how you run a daycare program. This is how you do a youth group. We have to have total predictable step by steps. There's this absolute terror of not knowing that seems so very prevalent in the Western church. I mean, you walk into a Christian bookstore and it's, it's all about how you can maintain control over mm. every aspect of your existence, which is very contrary to so much of what we find in the Bible. What we yes. find in the scriptures is about just shut up and be still like you don't need the answers. Yeah. It can be a bit pat and, you know, trite in some ways when we take that with the complexity of life, but you know, there's that big, but we have to like, just, we're not God. We're not Christ. We need to just shut up and do what we're asked to do to the best of our abilities and allow mystery to be mystery. Let, let the unknown be the unknown. Dr. Mandy Manick on learning to say no, letting go, and the future of mental health medicine. I am a firm believer that if we don't talk about these things, whether it's physician burnout or whether whether it's substance use, whether it's mental health. So then you say, well, I'm going to have some boundaries. But to get to that stage, you have to go through some shit to get to that stage. Because if I'm being honest, people don't get to be in positions like ours where we're successful and needed and getting accolades by saying no. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> we get there by saying yes and not knowing how to say no. Saying no is is a learned thing that you can only learn after you've been burned a few times. And I have done that. I have said, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to do lectures. I'm not going to do presentations. It's all work for free. It's burning me out. And guess what? Last night I did a lecture at TRU for free. <laughs> like, <laughs> because there's that slow, steady creep that happens. But if you work too much, and you, that's how you get your dopamine, you're considered part of a noble profession called medicine. But it's yeah. still unhealthy. It's mm -hmm. still, it's very unhealthy because unless you have balance in your life, it's all one-sided and that's all you're getting your dopamine from. Well, we pump people up who are working too hard and don't know how to say no and look down upon everybody else who's actually using a chemical to do the same thing. But letting go is actually, even now, like when I look back in 2019, letting go is probably one of the hardest things that I've learned how to do. And it was a time in, my, in, a, in a place in my life where I was struggling and I really resonated with, you know, doing that internal work. And I think, you know, maybe we have a long ways to go in terms of how we treat uh, addiction medicine patients or mental health in general, whether it's, you know, moral injury or burnout or depression or anxiety or whatever. And I think I'm hoping that in the next 20 years, really that will improve how we treat mental health and, and how we treat mental health patients more importantly. Director of Clean Slate, the documentary, Jared Callahan stops by to talk about the importance of hope and the power of storytelling. For, for them, I feel like there's a real element of hope and you could see it come and go. You were right to say it, recovery is non-linear and in so much of an American, for us, especially culture that is so productivity, achiever, consumer driven, right? With so, you, what do you bring and, and, and what are you building? And that is this very much, I'm going to literally climb a ladder, right? And that mm -hmm. is not how recovery works at all. So for these guys... And I wish I could have known that before getting punched in the face by it, uh, by having the recovery <laughs> go sideways on me, you know, multiple times. I was just a, a new friend, let alone a family member, which gave me some some grace and some humil humility as we started engaging their family members in the film and then in post since. Clean Slate for that is what I realized is especially for Cassidy is that he has to have a hope that today will be different. And the ability to bring his whole self today to his health. And if he didn't, then that's when slips would happen. Or that's when he would be vulnerable. Or that's when he would start cutting himself off from relationships that could be constructive. Or it's a web, right? It's not one thing that keeps you healthy. It's a, a number of touch points that if at any time you start to trim one or two, other people, a mentor, right? Or a community, like other places will hook you and be like, no, 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 no. We got you. Like, we're staying with you. Like, uh, an accountability. And I could see that in the, in them in different ways. And I learned them over time. Josh says at one point he's shaving and he says, some people get sober the first time, like my grandpa, but me, it's I'm, this is my 13th or 14th time. And that's got questions about what are you doing in a, in a recovery facilities that you could do at 13 or 14 times yeah. slip and not come to a solution that's prolonging those patterns of health or helping you get tools that work better for you. But it was not, he had not been in this one that long. And it's a system. He was stuck in a system that this is the way to do it. Follow the thing. And by the end of filming him, he was over it. He did not want to be there. He just, he says that, I think he says, I just want to have a regular life, a regular job. He wanted to find a relationship. You can't do that in a mandatory 
a strict place that wouldn't allow contact with the opposite sex. You know, it was, it was pretty strict in that one part in particular. So yeah, clean slate, you nailed it. it it's partly relating to what it means to wipe the slate clean when you're making a movie. You literally wipe it after every take. And if the take went great or terrible, you still erase it and write the next one on. But that's the only way to uh. put the pieces together and make a movie. And so fractioned little bits can all add up into something beautiful, kind of like a mo mosaic. And I see that in the way that the scenes of their life, for good or for bad, add up to be what it is. And they have to accept that in order to, to shoot the next scene or live the next day it's dynamic and it's multifaceted right like you could focus on one thing all the time and at one season for you it might be the key thing to focus on but as soon as you start ignoring other areas of your life those will creep up and get you it's a dynamic game if that's you know it's like it's like I'm always aware and you're always moving and I could see that and as soon as you would uh, Cassie could like lock and focus in on something movies with all of us I mean can provide a really safe place. And that scene, I love it. I love both that it happened that it was raining and we followed him into a, a DVD store mm -hmm. in Atlanta. They're so great. It's like one of the only DVD stores that still functions. It's independent. They're called Videodrome. They're so supportive. They're the best. They're excited for us to have copies of the movie so they can have it in the store. And they just let us follow them around and talk movies while filming them in the shop. And that was so cool. But then also when he was just on it, the one that gets me, he's on his couch, like you said, and he presses play and you just hear that like, the movie pre-roll, the famous ones that we can all yeah. do, you know, from memory. Mm -hmm. And he's alone and it's dark and it's raining and it's not good. But in that moment, he is good. And maybe, maybe lowercase g, good. Like he's okay. Yeah. He's yeah. good. And that, that movies and stories provide being seen in different ways and escape and feeling like you have friends. And I just think there really is something cathartic to that and in ways it can be really healthy. And then other ways it's escapism that leads you down paths that aren't unhealthy so overall it ends up being his channel for hoping to tell his story thanks for listening everyone we'll be back next week with new content for you if you like what we're doing here on recovery machine please consider joining our patreon it helps a lot with advertising costs and helps us get our message out there and uh, that's what we're trying to do so if you want to get a hold of us uh, get to our website at recoverymachine.org Email for the show is us at recoverymachine.org. That's us at recoverymachine.org. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.